you would turn with me in your Bibles to Isaiah 24. Isaiah 24. Over the past several weeks, we have looked at the covenant of works that God made with Adam in the Garden of Eden. And we've opened up Genesis chapter 2 and asked all of the questions that we have assimilated in our expanded definition of a covenant in order to see all of the different parts and pieces. And having concluded that this past Sunday, we are now uh, moving ahead to look at other passages of Scripture in the Old and New Testament that shed more light upon this covenant uh, that can help us to more rightly understand it. Isaiah chapter 24, verses 5 and 6. And this is the prophet Isaiah's judgment upon the whole earth. And Isaiah writes, The earth is also polluted by its inhabitants, for they transgressed laws, violated statutes, broke the everlasting covenant. Therefore, a curse devours the earth, and those who live in it are held guilty. Therefore, the inhabitants of the earth are burned, and few men are left. So there's a covenant that's referred to here, and in this context, it's speaking of the whole earth. And the only covenant that could possibly fit the description that's given here is the covenant of works. Because all of the other divine covenants of Scripture in the Old Testament are confined to uh, the descendants of Abraham. And it could not be rightly said of the Abrahamic or the Mosaic or the Davidic covenants that all of the inhabitants of the earth, without exception, were guilty of breaking it. And so... The only covenant that this could possibly be, as I said, is the covenant of works. The earth is polluted by its inhabitants. They transgressed laws, violated statutes, broke the everlasting covenant. There's two different ways in which this breaking of this everlasting covenant is true. The first is through the inherited guilt of Adam. Adam's sin, functioning as that federal representative head. And as he did, so did we all. When he sinned, we sinned with him. And we'll see that in just a little bit when we look at Romans 5, where Paul, a fallible New Testament interpretation of the old, expounds and expands uh, the federal representative nature of Adam, that he functioned as our representative, and as he did, so did we all. So that first sense. We are guilty and have broken this covenant because Adam broke it. But then also, we've talked about how this covenant of works did not end when Adam fell. It didn't end when he was kicked out of the Garden of Eden. It continued on. And that covenant of works, our confession teaches, is something that binds all men at all times to that personal, perpetual, perfect, exact obedience. And so not only are all of the inhabitants of the earth guilty of breaking this covenant because Adam broke it and because Adam did, they did, but they have also sinned and violated the law of God themselves. It's the difference between inherited guilt and actual guilt. Adam's sin brought upon them condemnation and death. And that sin led them, led all of us, even today, to break this covenant ourselves. If Adam's sin and the guilt passed on to us was not enough, we have ourselves sinned and violated this covenant. Notice that this covenant is, is called an everlasting covenant, one that exists all the way until the end of the age. So that two-sided uh, nature to the violation of this everlasting covenant through Adam and through our own works. Richard Barcellus, he's a Baptist theologian, he writes that Adam broke the covenant with God in the, in, in the Garden of Eden, and the effects of his covenant breaking affects those who live on the earth. That is everyone. So that he's looking at how Adam's sin uh, impacted us. Another quote, for all mankind to be under such a covenant, it must be the same covenant God made with Adam as the father of all humanity. Isaiah then assumes the covenant of works in order to apply it to all fallen mankind. 
So, an important reference to a covenant that is over all of mankind, not just at the beginning of the world, but thereafter, that all are guilty of violating this. The Abrahamic, Mosaic, and the Davidic covenants, uh, as I said, could not be this covenant, because again, they're only confined to the descendants of Abraham. So, a reference to the covenant of works. Any questions or comments about this particular passage before we look at the next one? All right, Hosea 6, 7. As you're turning there, I want to point out the implications of what Isaiah is getting at. There are many today who either reject the covenant of works and would not know what to do with this particular passage, but there are others who recognize the covenant of works but don't see it continuing on past the Garden of Eden. They also would not be able to handle this passage properly. The only way to rightly understand it is to recognize that yes, God made a covenant with Adam in the garden, and yes, that covenant continues on thereafter, which means that everyone today is born underneath that covenant. The reason why you and I are sinners is because we have broken the everlasting covenant of God. We have been born under this covenant of works, and the knowledge of what it requires of us is written uh, upon our conscience still. Um, remember as a child when... Um, as far back as you can remember, the very first time you recollect sinning. Um, I don't know if you can remember back uh, what your conscience was doing when you were trying to commit that action. I remember as a child, very vividly, one of the first times I remember intentionally sinning and breaking the rules that my parents had been. And I clearly remember what was going on in my mind, my conscience. But even at that young age, the knowledge of what was right was known to me, but I chose not to. Um, and when we, with our own children, see their knowledge of, uh, of what is right and what is wrong, and them choosing to do otherwise reveals, first, that they know what is right, but they're also included under this uh, violating of the everlasting covenant. See, that's, that's why um, the gospel is for everyone, even sinners. Even children are sinners. And what's important to recognize here is that we can't just read a, a verse like this and, and think of it looking back upon people who lived in, during that time, which it's important to do that, but recognize that this is true of every single human being that has ever lived, including you and me. We're viol violators of this everlasting covenant. And we need to look outside of ourselves for someone who kept this everlasting covenant which is why the Lord Jesus Christ is a savior to us because he too was born under uh, what the, the New Testament says is born under the law, this covenant of works, so that in keeping him, he might save those who were born under the law, us. Mike. No, he was speaking in regards to the penal substitutionary punishment, the guilt that was coming upon him, uh, that he had, at that moment when he said it is finished, he had verbally expressed the fact that in his, uh, in his body and his divinity, he had bore the wrath of God the Father in the fullness of what was necessary to cover the sins of so at that point, it was finished, and he could now die because sin was atoned for. Yeah, that's a great clarifying question. That is true. I, I think there definitely is a sense in which even in the suffering of Christ on the cross under the wrath uh, of God for our sins. He was um, 
acting in obedience to the Father's will. He was performing all that he was told to do. And so, in a sense, you could say that um, his work was completed um, in a general sense, the perfections of his righteousness, but also his atoning work is at that point finished too. And I, I think perhaps in that context that, that that second one is more what's in focus. But the first is true. So, but thank you for that, that question, Mike. Any other questions or comments? All right, Isaiah 6, verse 7. <clears throat> but like Adam, they have transgressed the covenant. There they have dealt treacherously against me. This is an extremely important verse defending the fact that Adam was in a covenantal relationship with God. This is the one verse that stands um, in many of the older Baptist writings as a defense against those who would say that Adam uh, was not in a covenantal relationship with God. And the context for this verse is within the nation of Israel. Again, it's the days of the divided kingdom. You have Judah, you have Israel, and both have separate kings, and both have turned in varying ways to living in outward rebellion to God. Um, and Hosea is sent as a prophet to prophesy judgment upon the people. And so when he is saying in verse 7, but like, but like Adam, they have transgressed the covenant. He's speaking of the Israelite people. Now the question is, what covenant is being spoken of there? Like Adam, they have transgressed the covenant. Two different ways you can interpret this. The first is that they sinned in like manner. They sinned similarly to Adam. Adam sinned, violated the covenant of works, and in like manner, the nation of Israel sinned under the covenant that they were uh, under, the Abrahamic and the Mosaic covenants, and violated those covenants. The other alternative uh, is that they both were under the same covenant and violated the same covenant through their sinful actions. Um, there's, again, a variety of opinion on, on how you interpret this verse. Both are valid. Both are uh, acceptable ways of interpreting the verse. Um, but fundamentally, what I want us to, to grab a hold of here is that this verse clearly teaches that Adam violated the covenant. Adam violated the covenant, which means that when he sinned, he was under a covenant. Therefore, the covenant of works is a true covenant. It's a real covenant. It's not just something that theologians have created. And those today who would denigrate such um, a recognition of what Scripture teaches are denying the truth of Scripture. And Hosea speaks uh, authoritatively that Adam was under a covenant and transgressed it, sinned against it. I personally believe that, um, let me back up a little bit and explain why I, I reached the conclusion I reached. So the nation of Israel, um, God brings them into special covenant with him through the Abrahamic and the Mosaic and the Davidic covenants. And all of those covenants, and we've talked about this, they're all built upon the foundation of the covenant of works. Theologians talk about how those covenants republish the covenant of works. They take the covenant of works that all mankind is bound under and republish it, make it binding, not in conscience form, but also in written form in the Ten Commandments, so that the people um, who living in rebellion can overwrite their conscience through their sinfulness, can no longer overwrite it when it's written down on tablets of stone. Uh, and that all of these Old Testament covenants really are built upon the foundation of the covenant of works, use the moral law within the covenant of works for them to, uh, as we've talked about, gain temporal, temporary reward. Possession of a land in Canaan. And maintain the possession of that, uh, that they would continue to be the people of God in that land. Um, and so when 
Hosea is saying that these people, like Adam, have transgressed the covenant. Um, they're really transgressing the fundamentals of the covenant of works. They have violated the same covenant that Adam violated, which is not just true of the nation of Israel, because remember Isaiah, we looked at that passage, all have broken it. But Israel here is particularly said to have broken it, violated it, which is why God is soon to bring upon this nation judgment. The Babylonians are coming and are going to destroy everything. Um, a temporal punishment because they have violated the covenants that are functioning within the covenant of works, covenants that are and were promising temporal reward. So, Hosea 6-7 is an important text. Depending upon how you understand it one way or the other, fundamentally, they violated the same principles of the same covenant that Adam did. And they stand guilty before God because they've sinned after the likeness of Adam, violating the same covenant. Again, this is a very important passage. A lot of the early Baptists used this passage to demonstrate the presence of a covenant of works and defending it, and it's one that is used uh, today. So those are the two significant New Testament references to Adam being in a covenantal relationship with God prior to the fall. We turn from that into the New Testament, and we turn to uh, Romans 5, the most clear display in all of Scripture of the inner parts and pieces of this covenant that God made with Adam. Romans chapter 5. Before we read through this chapter and begin a discussion of what it teaches, any questions or comments uh, on Hosea 6-7 or any comments in general? Romans chapter 5. Begin reading in verse 12, and we'll read through the end of the chapter. Romans 5, verse 12. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world. But sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. But the free gift is not like the transgression. For if the transgression of the one, for if by the transgression of the one the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. <clears throat> the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For on the one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions resulting in justification. For if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, much more, those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. So then, as through one transgression, there resulted condemnation to all men. Even so, through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. For as through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Even so, through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. The law came in so that the transgression would increase. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that, as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. This is a very important passage of Scripture. Our knowledge of the covenant of works and its connection to Jesus Christ would be incomplete without this passage of Scripture. 
So what we have here is a comparison of Adam, the first Adam, and the second Adam, Jesus Christ, which tells us that they occupied a similar position called first and then the second Adam. Notice the back and forth nature of this account where it's comparing Adam and what Adam brought and then Christ and what he brought. Some important things to note uh, throughout this passage. We're going to kind of work our way through it progressively and point out the things related to the covenant of works and also to Christ in connection with the covenant of works that are going to be helpful. It begins in verse 12, just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin. This verse, if you take it by itself completely out of context um, and reject especially the material at the end of this passage, um, you could use a text like this and believe in a blank slate ideology that all people are born blank and they sin after the imitation of the sins of others. Um, a common belief in some circles. But yet, this verse in context tells us that sin came into the world not because Adam sinned and then people copied him. It's not the case. Um, it's true that as sinners, we, we do imitate the sin of other people. We find it easier to sin when other people are sinning. But that, that's, that's not what Paul is getting at here. Paul is getting at the root of sin in every single human being who has ever lived. You and me and even our children. And you read this verse in connection with uh, what came at the very conclusion. Verse 19. For it was through one man's disobedience the many were made sinners. One disobedience, all become sinners. It's not a blank slate ideology. It, it's the, the doctrine of original sin. Adam's transgression of the conditions of the covenant of works led to his guilt, his sinfulness becoming true of every single human being. Notice in verse 13, for until the law, sin was in the world. And it's speaking of the law there and the, the time in which it was republished, the Mosaic law. At the point in which that law came into the world, sin already was. But look how the verse continues. But sin is not imputed where there is no law. Imputed. It's a very important word. The imputation here spoken of is Adam's guilt imputed upon us. So the, the, the point here, and it's important to recognize, is that Paul's argument here is working backwards. The law came on Mount Sinai. And the moment the law came, it did not introduce the idea of sin. Sin existed beforehand. But then his argument continues, but sin only becomes sin when it's a violation of the law. Therefore, if sin is not imputed or there is no law, the law had to exist before Mount Sinai. And it existed in the form of conscience. And it existed back with Adam because Adam had to violate something in order for him to become sinful and for that sinfulness to be passed down to us. So it's an interesting way of arguing. He's not arguing from Adam and then working forward. He's arguing backwards, following the chain of thoughts backwards to its conclusion. That if the law is present, sin is present, even before it was given on Mount Sinai in the form of the Ten Commandments. Because without the law, there is no sin. And he takes that point in verse 14 and then looks ahead again. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses. Because at the end of verse 12, one man's sin entered into the world, and because of sin, death. And death spread to all men because all sin. Adam's sin was as if we all sinned. Adam earned for himself the curse of death. 
And because we sinned with him, death spread to us all too. So you're seeing here this federal representative nature of Adam. And Paul is going to build upon that foundation by displaying Christ's federal headship, <clears throat> comparing his headship to the headship of Adam. <clears throat> so before the law was given, sin is present, Death is present. And then verse 15, we have the entrance of Christ. Speaking of the gospel and the salvation that comes through the gospel, but the free gift is not like the transgression. For if by the transgression of one, Adam, that many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift of the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. So he's demonstrating that there is a huge difference between what Adam's headship brought and what Christ's headship brought. And one thing that's interesting to note here in, in the wordplay, you, know, you won't see it unless you, you know the Hebrew, the, the, the name Adam literally means man. And so when Christ is called the one man, for the Hebrew mind reading that, they would automatically connect that language to Adam, recognizing in another way Paul's argument that Christ is the second man, the second Adam. Verse 16, the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For on the one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression, resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions, resulting in justification. So again, verse 16, the language of one sin brought condemnation, death upon all men. Verse 17, for if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. So we see here in Adam, the one transgression, and through him, the language of the federal representative headship, through him would come condemnation, death. Death reigned through the one. But notice the end of that verse, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. Adam's unrighteousness in the covenant of works brought condemnation and death. But Christ's righteousness in the covenant of works brings in grace, life. Justification for men. Verse 19, for as through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Adam's sin makes us all sinners. Therefore, the moment of our conception, we entered into this world and life was formed. We were already sinners. When we were born and, and entered into this world through passing uh, from the mother's womb and are, are now you know, not connected to the mother by the umbilical cord, and we're a living, breathing human being, separate from any other human being. The moment we take our first breath in this world, we're already a sinner. We're already guilty. We're already destined to the end. We're already under condemnation. And it's because of Adam. One man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. But notice the promise the end of that verse, even so through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. Obedience, righteousness, language speaking of how Christ operating as the second Adam performed all that Adam failed to keep. It's a wonderful side-by-side -side display of the 
weakness of Adam alongside the strength and the perfect righteousness of Christ. In fact, all of the Old Testament, from the moment of the fall, from Genesis 3.15, through all of the other relationships God has with man, through the, the covenants and the revelation, through the prophets, is pointing ahead, promising that one is going to come and live under the same covenant that Adam was under, but keep it perfectly, whose righteousness would bring justification to men. And Paul here is taking all of Old Testament history and is taking the threads and tying them all up in Christ. All of the promises that were revealed throughout the Old Testament in conjunction with um, the covenant of works and the abiding nature of it were pointing to Christ. And that the hope of the patriarchs, the hope of every Old Testament saint, was that through the promises one would come, would live under the same covenant that they were under that they couldn't keep. The law being a tutor pointing them to Christ. This one would come and would walk in obedience. And then that one's obedience and righteousness would become theirs. That was their hope. And that is the way in which they were saved. For as through one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Even so, through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. The law came in so that the transgression would increase. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. It's with the law that we see the greatness of sin, is it not? But it's also through the law and the obedience of Christ to the law that we see the greatness of the righteousness of Christ and the greatness of his grace towards sinners. Josh. Uh, so we've been talking about the universal application of the covenant of works across all people, across all time, because Adam is our federal representative head. And we also understand that Christ is the representative head for those who are in the new covenant and participate by faith. Why do you think in verse 18, um, there's the all men of Adam and then the all men of Christ? Um, what do you, because it's obviously not universal. So it's directly connected to the federal headship, the representative nature. So the, the all uh, of Adam is all of mankind, but the all in Christ are all who are united to him. Um, so it's only the elect. It's only those whom he, he actually died to save and whom he actually saves. And it, it's not applied any more broadly than that. Um, his actions um, in his perfect obedience, it was all performed for the benefit of a particular people, all who were in him. Any other questions or comments? The law came in so that the transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. What a wonderful gospel promise. Do you remember when you first came under conviction of your sin? And whatever means that was through, through the, the, the scriptures and the preaching of it or the law, uh, and all conviction is traced back in some manner or form to the commands of God, that much as the law could convict you and that feeling of condemnation being heaped upon you, the guiltiness that you feel which is something that's true of every single human being that's ever come under conviction. In the midst of that, the gospel and the grace of God is far greater. He's using a, a kind of a comparison here. As great as the law reveals our sinfulness, because its commands are clear, and the commands have that, that narrow function, but also the broad function. Uh, we see Christ demonstrating uh, that uh, commands are not, uh, the moral law is not just what the command explicitly says, but it's far broader 
Um, he, he uses the, the, the command on adultery as one of the, the great examples. It's not just the act of committing adultery, but it's also adultery in the heart, looking and lusting. Um, and that command is, is even more broad than that. That is as broad as the law is in its ability to encompass every single type and kind of sin that we could ever commit. And as much as it could convict us, rightfully so, the law in its convicting work compared to the grace of God that abounds to even the greatest of sinners. The, the comparison is, is one that, in reality, you can't even compare. The greatness of our sin is great, but the greatness of the grace of God is far greater, which is why there is not a single human being in this world who has committed perhaps even the most grievous sins that could be committed, that could not find salvation and righteousness in Christ. Think of some of the, the worst uh, kinds of people this world has ever known, uh, the, the greatest kind of, of evil and the heinousness of sin. Even to them, ones in which a world that has fallen but in common grace looks at and sees the wickedness and depravity, even to them, the grace of God abounds enough. And surely, all of us could not say that we are sinners to the extent and extreme like a Hitler or a Stalin, that yet our sin is um, far greater than we realize. The, the mountain of it is incredible. You realize that the law is summed up in loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and, and strength, and how there's never been a moment in our life where we've actually done that. That's how great our sin is. How many seconds have you been alive? Many. There's never been a second where you have fulfilled that command to the fullest. That's a, a little bit of a glimpse at the greatness of your sin. And, and putting it alongside Christ and his obedience, <laughs> that there was never a moment where he did not love the Lord his God with all of his being. And so when, when we look at the law, and we see how it was given so that the transgression would increase the knowledge and recognition of our sinfulness. Recognize that in that we see not only the greatness of the righteousness of Christ, but the greatness of his grace towards us who believe. And so Paul here is taking what lays all men low, humbles them, convicts, condemns, and puts it alongside the only place there's hope. The law, there is sin. But with Christ, there is grace and the gospel. Charles Hodge writes that Adam was the head and representative of his race, whose destiny was suspended on his conduct. So Christ is the head and representative of his people. As the sin of the one was the ground of our condemnation, so the righteousness of the other, Christ, is the ground of our justification. This relation between Adam and the Messiah was recognized by the Jews, who called their expected deliverer the last Adam. The Old Testament system was preparatory and prophetic, the people under its influences were looking forward to the accomplishment of the promises made to their father. The messianic period on which their hopes were fixed was called the world or age to come, and the Messiah himself was the one coming. That was the life of the Old Testament saint, looking, desiring, hoping. But we're living on the other side, are we not? We can, we can now look and look back upon what they at one time were looking forward to and trying to see but could see dimly and with shadows and in darkness. But we can look and see much clearer. We see a Christ who has come and we see in the Gospels a display of his covenant keeping, his obedience, his righteousness. And then in his death, we see the finishing of his righteousness, the finishing of his work 
so that the hopes of the Old Testament saints that were still just hopes and promises became realized when the blood of Christ was shed. You see, this is why rightly understanding the covenant of works is so important. The covenant of works is the only means by which there's hope with God. It's either your obedience to it in absolute perfection, which is impossible because you're coming into this world already filthy and a sinner, or you're looking to Christ's perfect keeping of the covenant of works that is graciously, by faith, granted to you. It's the foundation of the gospel. If you don't have this covenant of works and you don't recognize how it's connected from Adam to the second Adam Christ, your gospel is either shallow or non-existent. Christ was born under this covenant, keeping it in perfection, the only covenant that all of mankind could said could be said to be under, so that in keeping that covenant perfectly, he could dispense a perfect righteousness to all the families, nations, and tribes and tongues of the earth, which is why we're all gathered here today. All of us are from very different backgrounds. You know, I'm British, French, Irish, Scottish. And I guarantee you, if we were to go around the room and, and list our heritages, like we're coming from so many different backgrounds and um, relations. And if Christ did not live under this covenant of works and keep it in perfection, there would be no hope for salvation for someone like me or for you. We needed one who would live and keep this covenant perfectly. So that, so that there would be hope. So Christ is this second Adam, living under the same covenant that Adam was, that same moral law binding him to personal, perpetual, exact obedience. But he kept it perfectly, not just meeting, but exceeding what it required. And that's why we have a gospel that is gracious, and hopeful. So Romans 5 is extremely important, and the foundation that I, I've sought to lay in the weeks uh, in the past was to anchor our understanding in the covenant of works in Genesis 2 so that we could get to Romans 5, and in seeing all that we have, have, have seen, be able to see more clearly, perhaps than we ever have before, exactly what Christ did. And exactly how God the Father, because of Christ, sees us right now. How he deals with us and treats us. Because of Christ, he sees us as covenant keepers, not as covenant breakers anymore. And he deals with us and treats us that way. And in the uh, end of this age, when Christ returns and all of humanity stands before God, they're going to be declared guilty because they are violators of the moral law and the covenant of works. And yet we will step forward and we will be declared innocent because Christ's perfect obedience to this covenant will be ours. That's the gospel. That's our hope. That's what we're looking forward to in the future. Any questions or comments about uh, Romans 5? Romans 5.19 For as through one man's disobedience the many were made sinners even so, even so through the obedience of the one the many will be made righteous. That is a summation of every promise every single thing that scripture is, is, is fundamentally teaching about the gospel. I couldn't summarize it any better there. One man's <coughs> disobedience made all sinners. The obedience of Christ has made many to be righteous. <coughs> the passage that Paul refers to, 1 Corinthians 15, Let's look at that briefly. <coughs> 1 Corinthians 15. Now this is 
Paul's defense of the resurrection of Christ and its essential nature in the gospel, his argument is, fundamentally, if there is no resurrection, then our faith is in vain. And building upon that foundation, he uses, in verse 45, the imagery of Adam and Christ again, using it in a different way. So also it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. The first man, that word man, again, is the word Adam. The play on words, the first man, Adam, became a living soul. In creation, God breathed the breath of life into him. But the last Adam, Christ, brings true life. One of the things we've talked about with Adam in the covenant of works is that he had, during that probationary period, the ability to sin and die. And that his uh, life was lived hinging upon his obedience. In fact, all of our existence hinged upon his obedience. But with Christ, it's different. Christ's obedience purchases and applies for us Life, as scripture says, is eternal life, spiritual life. And he continues there, however, the, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, then the spiritual. The first man is from the earth, earthy, his flesh. He can return to the earth. The second man is from heaven. As is the earthy, so also are those who are earthy. And as is the heavenly. So are those who are heavenly. Just as we have borne the image of the earthy, we will also bear the image of the heavenly. All because of Adam are in that earthy category. And the image of the earthy, many different ways you can take that, but I think fundamentally one of the ways you can understand it in the context of sin because of Adam the image of the earthly is a false image bearer of God. Through sin, displaying this is who God is, when God himself cannot be that. See, that's why sin is so heinous and evil. We're saying in our actions, this is who God is, this is how he acts, this is how he should be understood, and yet God has revealed himself to not be that, which is why the moral law is so important, because it is the revelation of who God is, what he is. And we were created to image him rightly in the world. The uh, creation mandate was to, to multiply and to fill the earth with the image of God. But because of Adam, we bear that image. But because of the work of Christ, we will bear the image of the heavenly. We will once again bear the right image of God that we were created to possess. Now in this life, we are going through the process of sanctification, right? Where that imaging of God is being uh, refined, purified. The remaining sin, the remaining false representation of God is being whittled away. It's on the way out. And one of our, our great hopes is that there will actually be a day when in this flesh, in the presence of God, after the return of Christ, where we will actually image God rightly. We will no longer be imaging the fleshly one. We will image the heavenly one. And so that's our hope. Again, this comparison between the first man, Adam, he brought physical life, but the ability to die. But with Christ comes real life, spiritual life, when we are raised on that day, there will be no such thing as death ever again. So Christ is not just the second Adam, but Christ is our hope. This comparison between Adam and Christ is essential to the gospel. Those who reject the doctrine of original sin, the imputation of Adam's guilt, um, 
they lose not just the meaning of the gospel, but they're on the pathway to losing the gospel itself. Because why do men need to be saved if they have no sin to be saved from? Men don't become sinners by sinning. They become sinners because they're sinners by nature. That's the foundation of the gospel. This is uh, something worth defending. This is a hill worth dying on, the covenant of works. Without it, you're losing the gospel or you have already lost it. So this is, um, this is the, the New Testament witness to not just the covenant of works, but the results of it in light of Adam, but also in light of um, God's intention through the covenant of works in Christ. You see, when we look back at Genesis 2 and the foundation that's laid, Christ has already intended. The foundation has been set. Everything has been set in motion for Christ to come. It wasn't God responding with a contingency plan in Genesis 3 after the fall. No, God had already planned it all out. He had planned that Christ would come and live under the same covenant. And in Genesis 3, God begins the work of revealing what he's going to do. And so, throughout the Old Testament, again, we're seeing this progressive, expanding, growing revelation of the promises of God. The Old Testament saints are seeing the promises, understanding them, looking through them to this one, and by faith believing upon Christ for salvation. And we live in a glorious day in which we're looking dimly and through shadows revealing Christ. We get to look back upon a finished uh, work of Christ, a Christ who has come and has lived in perfection and has died and is raised and exalted at the right hand of God. We have a gospel that's far clearer. Um, things that Old Testament saints would have loved to understand in the fullness of the depths. So may we rightly steward that privilege. May we not get comfortable in our understanding of the gospel. May we dig deeper. May we spend time looking at how the Old Testament saints understood things compared to what we know today. See the greatness of that. May we, because of the clarity of the gospel, share that gospel with others more easily. As we discover our understanding of this gospel uh, growing and, and getting uh, deeper and richer, we can read our Bibles and be able to spot more of these revelations of the gospel. Be able to, in conversations with friends who maybe don't have as deep an understanding, we can point out, oh, this is pointing to Christ, and here's how it's pointing to Christ, and teach them and tutor them in finding Christ in the Old Testament. Christ is present there. He's present on almost every single page. Look for him. Find him. So that concludes our look at the scriptural testimony to the covenant of works in the couple weeks ahead, um, we'll be looking at the consequences of the fall more specifically, and then the scriptural evidence for what happened to the covenant of works after the fall. We'll be looking at that and then uh, how that um, relates in with the, the Old Testament covenants.